But when you when you start looking at a lot of the, the technologies and trends and how they're being utilized today, though I suppose there is that existential risk out, out there in the longer horizon from, from superintelligence or AI, the near-term problem is in fact us, right? You know, how do we manage forces at scale when warfare is being conducted at machine speed? You know, can you can you do air tasking orders? Can you, you know, coordinate you know, frequencies and communications? You know, at the at the scale and speed when you have you know, hypersonic weapons, energy weapons, cyber, you know, moving at machine speed. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, editorial director at MWI, and I'm joined on this episode by August Cole. He is the co-author, along with Peter Singer, of a new book that has just been released called Burn In. It's a novel about technology and really about humans' relationship with technology. But although it's a work of fiction, it is really well-researched, and the pretty remarkable technologies it includes are actually things that, as you can see in the hundreds of footnotes included in the book, already exist in some form or are starting to emerge, which gives it a sort of hybrid fiction, nonfiction feel. In the conversation, we talk about the book and its plot, but August also discusses the way he conceptualizes fiction as a tool with which to think about and even better understand the world and the future, including the future of war. I think it's a great discussion and I hope you enjoy it. Before we get to it though, a couple quick notes. First, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. It is a great way for us to stay in contact with the incredible community of listeners and readers who share our interests in topics related to modern war. And lastly, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the US government. All right, here's my conversation with August Cole. August, thank you so much for joining us. John, it's great to be with you. So uh, you have a new book uh, out, a new novel co-authored with Peter Singer. Uh, and, and and that's really kind of what I wanted to have you on to talk about because I had an opportunity to, to read it and found it fascinating and um, sort of illuminating and, and, a, and a really kind of clever way to think through some things that a lot of people in the defense community, the defense space and the military are talking about. Um, but sometimes in kind of an abstract sense. And the book as a novel sort of makes it real in certain ways. So um, I really kind of want to talk to you a little bit about the, the, the process and, and you know, your objectives when you sat down to write it, if you, didn't, if you don't mind. So the book is called Burn In. I wonder if you can give kind of, you know, without giving you any spoilers, what's the sort of elevator pitch that um, the idea really kind of developed around when you first, you and Peter first started talking about this? With Burn In, what we were trying to do was blend fiction and nonfiction for this new kind of book that you know leads you into this world in which a FBI agent is hunting a, a terrorist through Washington D.C. Uh, you know a decade or two from now. But unlike your conventional counterterrorism story, this FBI agent is paired with a robot partner, which has been forced uh, upon her as a uh, as a as a kind of policy move, and it comes in the midst of this moment in which America is really struggling to manage a society that has been fundamentally transformed at every level, from the household to uh, commercially uh, and by automation and AI. So when you say though that you know kind of blend fiction and nonfiction, um, I mean it is very much. A novel, right? I mean, that's the the subtitle is a novel of the real robotic revolution. Can you explain a little bit more what you mean by blending fiction and nonfiction? 
when uh, Pete Singer and I wrote Ghost Fleet, you know, we felt like that if we were going to really stretch the, the elastic band of credulity and posit the Chinese sneak attacking Hawaii and, and setting off a, a third world war, we, we had to anchor the book in, in the world, uh, not just as it is, but as it will be, not as we want it to be. So all the technology, all the trends and Ghost Fleet were real. And I think this helped underscore the credibility of the story that, that otherwise could have seemed fantastical. So with Burn In, we took a similar approach where, you know, we looked at, you know, hundreds of different technologies and trends and, and fused them together into a techno thriller. And make no mistake, Burn In is, is fundamentally a thriller. But we're allowing people to see what is ahead and what is going to happen in our politics, our economy with security, even, you know, how they're going to be parenting in this world in which some of the basic assumptions that we have today about what role will work have in our lives in the future what about privacy in a total data society? Uh, how will we think about the kinds of questions that have to do today with political leadership and partisan politics in 10 to 20 years? Is that system going to be equipped to deal with really existential questions about capitalism? And so what we're doing is we're you know, building this world that we hope is compelling, you know, using the traditional approaches of plots and characters. But we're, we're also very mindful of the opportunity to kind of help close this gap, as you mentioned, in understanding about technologies like machine learning and AI. So the hope is, you know, you can read a book that'll keep you up all night because it's so engrossing. It's either scaring you or it's exciting. And then the next day you can go to work and have a better understanding of how AI and robotics are going to transform our world. So you said it's a techno thriller and technology is clearly, um, a centerpiece of, of, of the story, um, especially sort of mankind's relationship with technology. But there's also this, it's set against this backdrop of a, you know, a political crisis, a social crisis, really, in this country. What was the reasoning for doing that? Because presumably, you could explore some of these without that, that backdrop. Um, and yet you chose deliberately to have that in there. Why would you do that? The ways that we think of the human relationship with robots, especially in how, for example, they're going to shape our future. We often get locked into a Terminator type narrative in which, you know, the robotic, uh, you know, the robot becomes self-aware and AI, you know, conspires to wipe out humanity. But when you, when you start looking at a lot of the, the technologies and trends and how they're being utilized today, though, I suppose there is that existential you know, risk out, out there in the, longer horizon from from super intelligence or ai the near-term problem is in fact us right you know we're on the cusp of something that is more like an industrial revolution but has these really transformational aspects uh, throughout society and is happening to us in a sense at a time when we seem incredibly ill-equipped to handle really the most fundamental aspects of uh, what we would normally expect from a functional and prosperous democracy you know, the COVID crisis uh, and the tragedy that it's becoming, I think, is revealing that we still have some massive holes in our social safety net that are going to create questions around how resilient can we be in the face of uh, not just a pandemic, but other kind of systemic shocks. And so in really trying to encompass the whole of society picture, thinking about the way that technology is going to influence politics, for example, seems to be a really important element that's missing for a lot of the conversation today. And even if we can identify discrete ways that say algorithms and social media are shaping you know, 
actions in the real world or, or perceptions and emotions online, there, there's yet another layer to this that when you start to peel back or uh, really kind of dig into, it's in fact more troubling. And so that in building the world of burn in, you know, our hope was to really put people in the middle of that so they could be thinking about when I wake up in that world, what would I be eating? What would I be smelling? Really engaging kind of that sensory aspect that, that I think really good fiction can do. But at the same time, prompting folks to kind of wrestle with a lot of these fundamental questions that they may not have time or or have the attention to otherwise to otherwise do. And, and when you're you know giving someone a novel, I think they're even better equipped to do that because they've actually experienced a lot of this from a character's point of view, rather than just reading it analytically in like a white paper or something like that. So it strikes me that um, it, the, the the you know the story is about technology, but I, I mentioned this before, but it's really about our relationship with technology. And you also seem to have made the deliberate choice of making the protagonist, Agent Keegan, this FBI agent, somebody who seems quite skeptical of technology at various times. Um, why, why, why make that decision? One of the, the aspects of Agent Keegan's relationship to technology that I think is really important in understanding her is the, the, the role that she had in the Marine Corps when she was deployed as like a robot wrangler. So she has a very utilitarian approach to technology. And the ways that we ascribe emotional value to inanimate objects, I mean, anyone who's ever owned a classic car, you know, you've seen this, um, is I think going to become even more pronounced when we start integrating the personality-like and uh, traits that can go with um, everything from just simply software, you know, like Alexa or Siri, to objects that are, you know, mobile or, or, or you know, humanoid. Uh, and are, that are under using kind of similar operating systems where, you know, it's typically like a voice interaction. And what we've seen already is even in the ways that we've used robots in wartime in the last 20 years that, you know, there have been pack bots that have been given, you know, essentially battlefield burials, that the emotional attachment that can become real uh, to a machine is, of course, something that is a very real and human experience. But we wanted to have a character in that protagonist role who would be somewhat skeptical and would not want to uh, have the sort of uh, ultimately aspirational uh, kind of narrative around technology that many of the people who I think shape today what we expect from the different sorts of systems out there, whether the robotic or AI. Um, so, you know, this kind of utopian vision of the future is certainly not the one that we are land in, in, in burn-in and finding someone who could stand within that world and look around and kind of look at it analytically and skeptically uh, and having that that skepticism be born out of experience and not just cynicism, I think is a really important, a really important aspect for having a guide to understand when you're standing on the edge of this, you know, transformational revolution and trying to figure out just what is going on. So um, it's interesting that you mentioned the sort of pack bots um, because there's a, there's a line in the, in the book where, um, Agent Keegan is talking about her time in the Marines and um, how the Marines interacted with robots that were quadrupeds and saying that they grew more attached to them. And, and maybe it's something about, you know, they, they're they more similar to our pets. There's a sense of dependency that quadrupeds, whether, you know, it's horses or dogs or, or, or cats or what have you, the sort of relationship that we have with them um, creates this sort of sense of, um, you said the, the, the group, the Marines grew more attached to them. There's kind of an intimate relationship that builds up on an individual level. Uh, is that, you know, 
in your opinion, then is is that sort of relationship with technology sort of a, a good thing, a positive in terms of the way that we can leverage uh, its advantages, or is that sort of more utilitarian mindset that Agent Keegan at least begins with um, maybe more useful? You know, I, I think it is okay to love a, a machine. I mean, maybe not in the truly like romantic sense, but you know, we can have uh, a strong sort of connection with with technology, especially when it's manifest. You know, like like the bots that we talk about. But what I, I feel like the the most important aspect is really understanding the role that those machines or, or or whether it's software, you know, play in our human relationships. And so that that I think can become really difficult to to understand and ascertain, especially in today's world when if you think about how we're relating to, for example, our mobile phones to the social media uh, applications and platforms, and we're being shaped uh, in our relationships algorithmically, right? You know, whether it's you know curating dopamine. Uh, hits or whether it is, you know, spooling up outrage and, and, and joy, you know, at you know, different intervals, uh, whether it's A-B testing and figuring out what works at scale with different concepts. So that's all in the virtual and kind of software domain. Imagine when we start applying or seeing people apply those kinds of capabilities and technologies to things in the physical world. That is a fundamentally different level of human experience that I think we haven't really come to grips with. And in the context of the future of conflict, you know, one of the really interesting aspects about the understanding uh, of, of what the what the role of the robot will be in the future of war uh, is, of course, you know, still open open for 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 debate and for contest. In, in Burnin, you know, we really I think tried to shed a little bit of light on that and, and talk about some of the trend lines that we see in that, which is that you know, battle bots will be small. We won't see these kind of hulking, titanic, large mecha uh, in the in the near to you know near near term here uh, that that will be you know most useful, but rather insect-like, you know, as you said, quadrupeds, dog-like size machines are probably more practical, less vulnerable, uh, and more scalable, which I think is another aspect of, of robotics. And, and, you know, a very different kind of paradigm, if you will, than the way we acquire and procure, you know, complex technical systems today. So the the way that we, we you know, unpack that too, and, and the way that Keegan reflects on her experience as an FBI counterterrorism agent, how that's informed by our military service, and, and the relationship she has with Tams, this robot, you know, is is absolutely part of part of her uh, her, her service as a marine, and is being like the the, the framework through which she understands, uh, you know, what's what's happening around her and what's going to be happening ahead. So there's a um, there's a good example. You know, there there are many of these sort of micro robots that are doing sort of um, small tasks that are kind of enabling. Um, humans to do things that humans have already done, always done already, but do it a little bit better, a little bit faster. Um, we've published at MWI, we've had a, a number of articles about kind of the role of AI uh, on the future battlefield. And the consensus is that um, it's not going to be, you know, our robots fighting their robots um, and kind of taking over the, the the sort of the core functions of war fighting, rather enabling better human war fighting. Is that the sort of sense that you get in from, I guess, the research? I mean, there are 28 pages of, of footnotes to this, so you, there's clearly a lot of research done. Is that your sense? Oh, that's a great question. You know, the the way that, that Keegan and this investigation that she's, uh, you know, undertaking, and the way that she, you know, learns to change the relationship that she has with with this robot Tams from the beginning and how the the, the software itself and the robot evolves throughout you know, you, you, you're really, I think, in, in you know, creating that storyline in the book, you know, trying to figure out 
are you just writing like a human to human, you know, dialogue, a human to human kind of, uh, you know, emotional relationship or, or are you really actually understanding a human machine relationship? And I think fundamental, just like with the way we relate to one another, it is that like arc of change, right? Our relationships do have, uh, you know, beginnings, middles and ends. And, and I think some, to some extent, you know, the, the question about the role of machines in the future of war is going to reflect that both individually, but also collectively, you know, the way that, that machines are adopted and implemented in civilian applications, you know, whether it's kids with ever more sophisticated gadgets and toys, whether it's life-saving, you know, octocopters that are being used by EMS services, that's going to fundamentally change our expectations too. Of what happens during, during conflict with, with bots. And, and so I think that uh, almost like holistic view, I think is really, really important in, in, in making sure that you know, we are using the same kind of analytical uh, you know, mindset that we would with other aspects of the way civilian societies produced fighting forces, that we do that with, with robotics too. And so you know, as, as we kind of researched this and looked at you know, how people relate emotionally, but also the boundaries in terms of what is possible te- technologically speaking, because everything in burn-in is real or in development just like with Ghost Fleet. And, and the hope is that, you know, by, by anchoring in that reality, when we portray, you know, these, these uh, you know, often fantastical things happening, people will know, in fact, that that is, that is very much in our, in our near future. And from that, then be able to kind of think through some of this for themselves and, and, and really unpack, you know, what they think about that, that very, really important question you identified. I think that decision to root it in reality, but put it far enough into the future that it is substantially different or, or recognizably different than kind of our, our current experiences is a really unique one. Um, you know, one of the advantages to say science fiction, especially is that it sort of breaks us free of the constraints um, that are placed on us by the real world and our perceptions of the real world. And, you know, Starship Troopers, Ender's Game, um, these things that kind of let us like burst through those boundaries and explore some things on on kind of a different level. On the flip side, you've got, you know, say especially fiction that's written in the in the here and the now, um, that is is really kind of forced to stay within those boundaries. You kind of are able to push through a little bit, but still make it something that we can connect with. And to demonstrate that, again, footnotes showing, hey, these programs already exist or they're being explored. Um, was that was that a deliberate choice in, in, in your experience, is that something that's a, that it is as unique in the world of fiction as it seems? Putting endnotes in a techno thriller still seems to be a pretty novel concept. And when we considered the role that they played in making Ghost Fleet a believable story, we were from the beginning certain that we wanted to do the same thing with Burn In. You know, there, there's almost a creative, right? And then there's also a, you know, kind of a, an analytical, uh, you know, rationale behind them that I, that I like to, to kind of identify. You know, on the, on the analytical, I'm able to find information and be fully transparent with the reader about what role it plays in the genesis of the story. You know, a good example would be, you know, the, the, the job that Keegan's uh, husband has is directly tied to uh, some of the studies that have been done about the role of white collar uh, professions in the AI era and how many of the jobs that people who have gone to traditionally excellent schools and worked hard at, you know, may be, you know, algorithmed out of existence. So trying to understand if you're reading that, why we made a choice to make somebody, you know, an ex-lawyer or not, I think is really important because those are the sorts of ways we can connect with that that factual information. 
on the creative side, the use of EndNotes, uh, again, even though it is unusual, it is, is a great tool because when you're really, you know, pushing the boundaries of expectations of what is possible or not, when someone encounters something that it just like, they feel like shouldn't even pass the giggle test, but then they realize it's got an EndNote right there pointing to it. It fundamentally allows you to connect with uh, that, that, that experience intellectually where you're just like, wow, I can't believe that's real. And you can continue to read the story and look up that, whether you're looking at an ebook, for example, you can do it right away or you can flip to the back. You know, the, the thing you, you don't want to do, obviously, you know, when you're, when you're weighing, you know, what to use an EndNote for or when not to, is you don't want to interrupt the flow of, of like a really great you know, passage. But, but we were very aggressive in using EndNotes because so many of the technologies, so many of the concepts too, particularly around AI, you know, around machine learning or other technological things about cybersecurity or infrastructure security. We felt like we we didn't want to lose that moment, that teachable moment in the book, and so the endnotes really help us help us uh, you know connect with the with the reader in that in that way. I'm glad you brought up the um, the example of Agent Keegan's husband because I found that really really fascinating on a couple of levels. Number one, um, what he ends up doing um, when he sort of can no longer do his white collar job as a lawyer is um, is sort of filling a gap that at this point still AI cannot do. There's a sort of a human emotional component to relationships that AI cannot provide. Um, and I think it's a really interesting window into that. But m- more broadly, you, you sort of paint a picture of the legal field, um, you know, from what we experience now, what, what what we expect now, which is all about billable hours, maybe in 15 minute increments or eight minute increments, depending on the firm, um, down to lawyers being, increasingly displaced by machines and really fighting over, I think you even say in their billable seconds, um, which is really, really fascinating because there's a corollary in the military. Most When we talk about AI and robots on the battlefield, we're talking about operational battlefield machines that can do things kind of on the on the front lines at the tip of the spear. And yet we haven't really explored some of those sort of, um, you know, rear echelon operational command and leadership and and strategic decision-making components that could equally be displaced. I think that's a really fascinating window into that. Was that sort of deliberate? You know, choosing uh, a character to understand a macro theme is is like a great way to embody, you know, a concept in a person. And, and, and it was very deliberate in, in our, in our, you know, creation of, of Keegan as a very complete, you know, character herself, who's and if, you know, Marine turned FBI counterterrorism agent, she's a parent, she's a wife, you know, it's kind of watching her marriage fall apart and watching her, her husband's place in society, you know, slip every, you know, month uh, farther and farther from, from where they both thought it was, was, was going to be, you know, the way that we look out into the landscape of work in the future and think that automation and job replacement happens to other people, I think is one of the biggest blind spots that, we often have in considering what lies ahead. And I think that's also true in the conversation about defense and security as well, you know, in terms of where can technologies that are uh, scalable and fundamentally game-changing in terms of how we you know, reallocate intellectual, let alone physical effort, you know, the, the, the tip of the spear kind of concept uh, as being the part of the, the AI conversation or robotics conversation that, that gets most of the airtime probably doesn't reflect the reality of implementation in the next five or 10 years, that the easier on-ramps for 
using these kinds of systems in logistics, in personnel management, in intelligence collection and analysis seems to be a far richer, less ethically fraught, potentially, uh, although you could argue there's just different issues that are being raised and the same pitfalls are there. And so what we're trying to do when we, you know, again, we have a character that kind of represents this trend line is get people to connect with that concept and idea and start thinking that through, you know, more broadly, just beyond that one person's future, you know, existence. Uh, and, and I think the same way you you look at Keegan's husband, you could have the same fictional explorations and that kind of ficant model or useful fiction model of exploring, you know, the, the, the logistics uh, operations or, you know, in, especially in a great power conflict context, you know, how do we manage forces at scale when warfare is being conducted at machine speed? You know, can you, can you do air tasking orders? Can you, you know, coordinate, uh, you know, frequencies and communications, you know, at the, at the scale and speed when you have, you know, hypersonic weapons, energy weapons, cyber, you know, moving at machine speed, um, that doesn't seem to be like a very realistic, uh, possibility. And so the more time we invest in these kinds of questions, I think, especially from that human perspective, uh, the better chance we have of getting ahead of these problems. So I want to kind of shift gears a little bit and ask you, um, a question, maybe a little bit about inspiration and process. Um, we published a review a couple of weeks ago by uh, one of our senior fellows, Steve Leonard, who was struck by the, um, the sort of parallels between burn-in and uh, a short story called A Boy and His Dog. They made a movie about it in the 70s, but the story was by uh, an author named Harlan Ellison. Was that something, Was that, were those parallels something that you were aware of when you wrote it? Uh, was it deliberate? And, and maybe were there other sort of inspirations to kind of help shape the story and the way that you kind of convey some of the lessons you're trying to convey? You know, it's funny. I've actually seen that movie that starred a very young Don Johnson uh, in The Boy and His Dog as, as part of that Cold War, you know, sci-fi canon. And, and I did read the book a long time ago. Uh, no, I mean, it wasn't really at the at the fore, uh, you know, in, in at least, you know, consciously in, in thinking about it as a as a parallel. But, you know, ultimately, you know, the relationship between, um, you know, our human and robot in in Burn-In is something that we wanted to stand uh, and, uh, apart, right, and be unique. Because one of the interesting facets of writing about something like, you know, a not a sentient machine per se, but a machine that you can have a relationship with, uh, is that we're doing so in an era where, you know, we can wake up and talk to Alexa about what our day holds in store for us. Or, you know, my daughter will be, you know, having Siri you know, conversations and, and has been, in fact, for years. So the, the, the kind of uncanny valley you're, you're living in when you're writing about a lot of this from a sci-fi perspective is really interesting because you can identify all these little threads to start pulling all around you. Uh, and whether it's, you know, micro robotics, whether it's uh, this kind of, again, the software, uh, you know, human relationship. I don't know if you remember uh, the film Her by Spike Jones that came out, I think, five or six years ago, which I think is one of my favorite uh, films that yeah. really unpacks like that human operating system relationship. And, you know, if you can be, uh, you know, as a, as a creator, you know, getting people to so connect with that sort of a storyline, because that fundamentally, for example, is a love story. Um, but it really redefines and, and tests us in terms of understanding what, what is love in the algorithmic era. You know, that's the kind of like aspiration that I have when I'm writing, you know, not just burn in, but other short stories too, is really getting people uh, to, to kind of place themselves into these positions where these bigger truths are out there and you're trying to understand them through, you know, a narrative that, that has like a very, you know, real world, often gritty uh, aspect to it. So you mentioned a term, ficant, 
Um, I wonder if we can kind of unpack that within the context of, of Burnin a little bit. The, the idea is that fiction is a tool with which we can better explore and understand the world. And correct me if I, if there's a better way of kind of describing it, but is that something that, you know, I've heard you talk about it. Did you write this book with that specifically in mind? That is exactly, you know, what, what I, how I articulate fiction. I think, I think it's, you know, it's something that is woven throughout the mission that I am trying to to do right now, which is, you know, using fiction in various ways, you know, the, the kind of quick tag is like, you know, can you use narrative to avoid strategic surprise? Um, you know, the, the differentiation I think between like a, a classic science fiction work and something that has this useful fiction or fiction aspect to it is, you know, how closely does it tether itself to reality? And so, you know, burn in was very much a product of this fiction mindset. Uh, the, the end notes, as we've talked about the, the technological, uh, and trend line, you know, cornerstones that are that are there in the story to anchor not just you know world building, but actual the direction of the plot and what people do or don't do. So so it certainly is this moment where you know it's something that you can use to write you know short fiction, whether it's crowdsourcing, you know, like the Army Mad Scientist program has done, uh, like MWI has, has showcased on its own website, to you know something as as big as a novel. Because if the objective is to have this educational aspect, you know, when I when I'm kind of envisioning a story, even one as big as this, I'm often thinking about well, who, what is the ask of the reader who's going to be, uh, you know, consuming this? Like, is there something that I want them to see differently in their world or understand better about themselves or questions that I think they can start, start posing. And so my, you know, my hope is that, that, that approach, you know, is, uh, creatively credible so that people, you know, are actually reading what you write because there's no point in writing something that no one will finish if it's not any good. So the hope is that you can kind of hold those things in, in tension and, and and create something that that can balance both the useful, uh, but also the entertaining. And and I don't think it's it's a bad objective to have either to to produce something that is ultimately entertaining, uh, yet yet is kind of packed with insights too. Well, I don't want to give any way give away any sort of you know secrets of the plot because. Um... It's, I mean, it's an enjoyable book in and of itself, even if people aren't setting out to kind of learn from it. Um, but I think they'll find that they do. Uh, but without giving any of that away, what is it that you're kind of hoping readers, specifically the types of readers that say, listen to the MWI podcast, members of the military, the defense community, people with with kind of a keen interest in some of these issues, what is it you're hoping they will take away from uh, from the book? One of the takeaways that I think is most important for people who read Burn In is to understand that we are in the midst of literally an historic revolution happening uh, all around us that that could be, you know, uh, as as profound as the industrial revolution itself, if not more. And yet, our ability to understand what is driving that change, particularly technologies like AI, which have this black box aspect to it, uh, meaning they're quite mysterious. Even their inventors often have uh, difficulty understanding why software does certain things, and so. The, the objective is that if you can read a story that is fictional, of course, but rooted in this nonfiction uh, framework, that you're going to have a much better sense of understanding what is in store. And that means not just listening to the kind of utopian perspective from many people in the technology community, but really understanding these sorts of tech trends as they might play out and considering what the consequences are where the risks are, where the threats are. And to be able to wrap that into a thriller novel, it's like ready-made because those are the ingredients of a good story. And the, the, the way that we're trying to process you know, what is happening all around us right now, I think it very much speaks to that 
need to be able to consider these massive forces that are that are at work right now that when we wrote burn in you know over the last 3 years we anticipated things like the rapid virtualization of medicine or remote work in fields as diverse as education to uh, sales, for example, that they would take place over 5, 10, 15 years. And instead, much of this has happened in weeks. So a lot of the conversation now, when we're at a point in America where unemployment is at Great Depression levels, and a lot of the assumption by many Americans is that things will go back to normal, that their old jobs will be there. I don't think that's a bet we can we can we can make collectively or or let alone individually. Moreover, the use of data as we come up with our societal response to this pandemic is fundamentally rewriting the rules about what information government collects and how it uses it, what information business collects and how it uses it. And for my, you know, red team, uh, you know, kind of utopian uh, well, I should say I'm a, you know, an optimist who stares into the abyss. You know, from from that perspective, as somebody who's thinking about bad stuff happening a lot, you know, thinking about ways people can exploit uh, not only the gaps that society is starting to see form uh, in terms of the you know political fissures or cultural ones right now, but also what all that data means for the stability and security of society, especially if it's not well managed and handled. So it's a lot that is being wrapped up, of course, in a in a simple book. Uh, but our hope is that people connect with the story enough that they start you know, pulling these threads themselves. You know, it's, um, I've long felt that it's impossible to read a book and completely discount the context of your own life when you're reading it. Um, you know, we're in this kind of unprecedented set of circumstances and there are a number of lessons that you sort of touched on and, and highlighted, um, that are especially sort of resonant, um, today within this context that maybe wouldn't have been if, you know, this book had gone on and been published and, and, the, and the current, you know, the sort of pandemic circumstances hadn't, um, hadn't sort of emerged. So I think readers are also going to, especially those that have pre-ordered or, or are going to be reading it in the, in the coming weeks or, or hopefully not too many months, um, depending on how long this goes on, are going to kind of appreciate it on, on, on a different level. Um, as I did. So thank you so much for, uh, for joining us for this episode of the MWI podcast. Uh, it's a great book. Um, I think it's out, uh, right around the day that, that this podcast, this episode will go live. Um, so I hope it, uh, I hope it does well and best of luck. Thanks again. And it's always great to, uh, be in contact with, uh, MWI. Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing before you go, if you aren't subscribed to the podcast, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, literally anywhere you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, we would love it if you could take just a moment and give the podcast a rating or leave a review. All right, thanks again. Thanks again.